listening to Driven by Insight. Join Willie Walker, Walker and Dunlop's chairman and CEO, as we bring you fresh perspectives about leadership, business, the economy, and commercial real estate. Willie hosts a diverse network of leaders as they share wisdom that cuts across industry lines. His guests are experts in their fields. From leading economists and CEOs to Harvard and Yale professors and everything in between. Our one goal is simple, providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our first Walker webcast of 2022. Having just crossed the 3 million total listeners threshold at the end of 2021, I'm really excited about what is to come in 2022 for the Walker webcast. And what better way to start the new year than with such a terrific guest as Dr. Michael Roizen. A couple quick programming notes before I dive into Dr. Roizen's impressive bio and our discussion. Next week, we have our quarterly discussion on the macro economy and commercial real estate with Dr. Peter Linneman, a mutual friend of Dr. Roizen's and mine. My discussion with Peter continues to attract huge audiences. And after having just read his quarterly letter, you're not going to want to miss next week's webcast. The following week, I have former Grand Slam tennis champion and number one tennis player in the world, Jim Courier, joining me from the Australia Open. Uh, given that Australia just changed their country's COVID policy to allow Novak Djokovic to play in the Australian Open, it will be fascinating to discuss with Jim not only his career to becoming the world's number one tennis player, but also what is going on in the tennis community around the globe. And after Peter and Jim, we have an amazing lineup of guests to discuss everything from where to invest in 2022, how artificial intelligence is changing our world by the minute, and how to lead a major financial services organization. I wrote an email this morning to a number of people at Walker and Dunlop highlighting three articles in today's Wall Street Journal. Uh, the first, that OPEC just increased their daily production by 400,000 barrels, clearly stating that they don't think Omicron will slow down the global economy. Second, that investors are piling into the distressed debt of senior care facilities, reinforcing the sentiment that we may be near the end of the pandemic when senior care facilities can get back to something closer to normal. And finally, the, ex the exemption by Australia and the NBA to allow Novik Djokovic and Kyrie Irving, respectively, to resume playing. While the Omicron variant is very clearly here and impacting all of our lives every day, there seem to be clear signs from the market that we are getting close to the end. I very much look forward to hearing my guests' thoughts on that topic. I would also add from a general macroeconomic standpoint that we ended 2021 with a Goldilocks economy. The Dow Jones Industrial Average ending the year around 36,500 and the 10-year Treasury around 150 is something that if you rewound the tape a year and ask the world's savviest investors to give you what they would say would be an incredible outcome for the year, I doubt they would have gotten close to those numbers. Uh, inflation is clearly prevalent throughout the economy, but the inflationary pressures in December did play a large role in stopping the profligate spending and new bills coming out of Washington. I'll take 6% inflation any day over $3 trillion of spending and increased taxes. And while rates have run 15 to 20 basis points from the start of the year, we need to keep in mind that a 167-10 year is still dramatically low. For most of the 2000s prior to the great financial crisis, the 10-year Treasury sat between 4 and 5%. So to my guest, 
This is one of the most amazing bios I've had the pleasure of reading. I'm going to try and move through it as quickly as possible, but there's so much good stuff in here that gives context to my guests that I want to make sure you don't miss it. So Dr. Michael Roizen is a graduate of Williams College, an Alpha Omega Alpha graduate of the University of California, San Francisco Medical School. He performed his residency in internal medicine at Harvard's Beth Israel Hospital and completed public health service at the National Institutes of Health in the laboratory of Irv Kopin and Nobel Prize winner Julius Axelrod. Dr. Roizen is the co-founder of Real Age Inc., which he sold in 2006, but still chairs its scientific advisory board. Dr. Roizen is a past chair of the Food and Drug Administration Advisory Committee and a former editor for six medical journals. He has published more than 185 peer-reviewed scientific papers, 100 textbooks, chapters, 30 editorials, and four medical books, and received 13 U.S. and many foreign patents. He was first on the faculty at the University of California, San Francisco, then chaired the Department of Anesthesia, Anesthesia and Critical Care at the University of Chicago, and then became Dean of the School of Medicine and Vice President for Biomedical Science at the State University of New York, Upstate. He then became Chair of the Anesthesiology Institute at the Cleveland Clinic, and in 2007 was named Chief Wellness Officer at the Cleveland Clinic, the first such position in a major healthcare institution in the United States. Dr. Roizen's first general audience book, Real Age, Are You As Young As You Can Be, became a number one New York Times bestseller. Other books include the New York Times bestseller, The Real Age Diet, The Real Age Makeover, You, The Owner's Manual, written with Health Corps founder, Dr. Mehmet Oz, also a number one New York Times bestseller. And he has authored or co-authored four number one New York Times bestsellers, nine top 10 bestsellers. He and uh, Dr. Oz write a daily newspaper column syndicated to over 100 newspapers by King Syndication. And his newest book, The Great Age Reboot, with co-authors Peter Linneman and Albert Ratner, which we will discuss today, will be on bookshelves and Amazon in September of 2022. Finally, Dr. Roizen still practices in internal medicine using the real age metric to motivate his patients. He routinely takes patients at the Cleveland Clinic Wellness who are in the midst of struggling with tobacco, heart, diabetic, or arthritis problems and coaches them with simple but persistent lifestyle changes to be able to live, feel, look, and be years younger. He really enjoys getting them to throw away their medications when they are no longer needed and teach them the role of food and other simple steps in reversing the disease process. So, Mike, first of all, thank you so much for joining me. Um, I will tell you, just reading your books and doing research for this discussion has changed my life. Um, since reading What They Eat and When, I Have Not Had Dinner, and since reading The Great Age Reboot, I've called up my insurance broker and thought about canceling my life insurance policy. So, um, and we're going to dive into those two things in a moment. But day after tomorrow, Mike, is your 76th birthday, but your real age is closer to 55 years old. Can you explain to us what your real age is? Your real age is the actual age of your body as opposed to your calendar age. And you can be many years older or younger. So we now say 60 is the new 40. So for the majority of people who want to, 
you will live like the average 40 year old in 1980 at age 60. And it's not that hard to do it pretty soon. And that's the, the reason, the only reason I write books is because there's compelling new science. So what to eat when was written when the science of intermittent fasting got to be enough human studies that we could say that that was a really appropriate strategy to try and to, to do for slowing aging. Well, the Great Age Reboot now um, is basically that the science is going to be so that we're going to be able to be 90 when we're going to be able to be 40 when our calendar age is 90. And um, a lot of that will change everything else, which is why Peter Linneman and Al Ratner are, are part of it, because the economic and political changes that occur with that are uh, substantial. So we're going to be planned for. So we're going to jump into all that in a moment. Uh, but before we get to that, so I believe it's just under 70 million people have gone on and done the completed the real age questionnaire. When someone completes that, what does it tell them? I mean, so you're talking about someone who's 90, who is actually acting like they're 40 or feels like they're 40. What are the how do you determine what your real age is? So you can go and take the that. But what it is, is, you know, I, I got the privilege of being at the University of Chicago when Charlie Becker was there, who did the net present value of investments and won the Nobel Prize in economics for it. And so when we started this, I um, actually contacted him and we worked together and did the net present value of health changes. So, for example, if you walk 10,000 steps a day, um, compared to the typical American you are about 4.6 years younger. So if you're, uh, and it's a little different from men and women, but that's what the computer does and it does a covariance. But essentially what it is, is what's the net present value of your health choices? And it goes over, there literally are 157 things for men, 158 for women that influence uh, your rate of aging. And I'm assuming the Delta gets bigger as you get older. So a that, that's exactly right. Right. So it compounds. Um, and and as the new science starts, the compounding gets even much bigger. Um, and maybe you'll talk next week with Peter Linneman about how that compounding. I mean, he 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 uh, really convinced us that uh, starting early is a policy change. The U.S. needs to make like Australia and, and Singapore and Holland have done to be able to reduce wealth inequality. So in your book, when they eat, what, excuse me, what they eat, when, I guess the core question is, why should we care about when we eat? So we always thought the sun controlled sleep and that was about it. But the hormones that the sun affects aren't just melatonin, but are insulin as well, and the sensitivity of a number of receptors. And what has happened over, we don't know, over centuries, if you will, is because we always had our lifestyle tuned by the sun, that eating more early, less later, and eating in a smaller window, a eight-hour window, so that you get ketosis every day, does two things. 
it changes your circadian, um, if you will, genes, and it changes the genes that function um, relating to metabolism and aging. Now, I've said an awful lot there. So let me just say, you are a genetic engineer. So whether you know it or not, you're better. And clearly, even if you don't know what DNA is, you change the way your DNA functions by your habits every day. So, for example, when you get to ketosis, your body thinks you're in survival mode. That is, you're going to die. And so it starts to preserve and recycle your proteins and other structures. When you then eat, so let's just say you have a 14 or 16 hour window of fasting every day. In Once you get past 14 hours, you start to be in ketosis. Your body goes into survival mode. It turns on genes that recycle your old cells. Then when you eat again, and hopefully correct food, and we can get to what I mean by correct, it means food that will love your body and your brain back. When you get to that new eating again, you start to grow new cells. So it slows your rate of aging considerably. We used to think it was calorie restriction, but the way calorie restriction worked is people ate in a small time frame, so they were getting this benefit, animals as well. So you're a genetic engineer. So the the whole point of the what to eat when is that by changing that time period, you change your rate of aging and you change your weight. So one of the things that happens is you're more insulin sensitive in the morning, more resistant in the evening. So a calorie is a calorie is a calorie in the test tube. But in your body, a calorie eaten early in your weight period is less of a calorie than a calorie eaten later. How much less? It's about 15% less. So eating the same number of calories early in the day versus late in the day makes you um, less likely to be obese. So in your book, there's a study that showed that if you eat 70% of your calories for breakfast, you lose weight. And if you versus 70% for dinner, you gain weight. So it is really just that your body can absorb those calories much more effectively during the day. And if you're having a big dinner and you go to bed, basically your system shuts off. Therefore, those glucose stores turn into fat and metabolizes fat rather than being used as energy during the day. Is that, I mean, to to a layman like me who's trying to figure out the science behind this, is that pretty much it? That's pretty close. So one of the, I don't know if everybody knows how much work you do in preparation for these podcasts or webcasts, but I am blown away. I've been on a lot of webcasts and a lot of TV shows. No one does the amount of work you do. So you should, you, you should know that. So essentially it is, that's right. You get a switch that's, that changes from using the calories and getting rid of them to storing the calories the later in the day you eat it. And the later in the day or closer to sleep you eat it, the more likely you are to store those calories. So one of the challenges that I've had since I started to do this, Mike, is that I haven't had family dinner. So I was just curious, how's your social life? Well, you know, I am a crazy, I'm a science nerd. So a lot of my time in the evening is reading medicine. But the rest of the time, I'm also a 
Cavalier, Browns, and Indians are, are now Guardian season ticket holder. So a lot of my social life is going to sporting events with people. And hopefully I, I am into the sporting event enough that all I have is a glass of wine. So I, I try and not eat before 11 or 11.30 in the morning and to finish eating by 7 or 7.30 in the evening. So I get 16 hours of, uh, if you will, getting into ketosis every day. So it's my understanding that your co-author of that book, Mike Crupain, has a salad for dinner and a glass of wine. And I was curious about the glass of wine because lots of books that you read on dieting and things of that nature say, leave the alcohol behind. And I was very surprised that Mike, and I believe you as well, will have a glass of wine along with that light dinner. Talk to me for a moment about alcohol and its impact. So um, we've always thought, and this was based on a number of studies, that there's a what we call a J-shaped curve and all-cause mortality from alcohol, meaning if you are a teetotaler, you have a higher all-cause risk than if you drink a half to two drinks a day, and that as you drink four or five, your mortality, your risk of mortality gets substantial. That's been questioned, but it looks like there still is a J-shaped curve with the lowest risk for all-cause mortality, especially from cardiovascular disease, being in the one-half to one drink a night for women. Um, and now we think it is maybe three or four nights a week and uh, one to two drinks a night for men, again, three or four nights a week. And, and uh, make sure everyone understands one drink a night is not seven on Friday night. It is spaced out. So that seems to be the, um, so the, the J-shaped curve seems to still hold. There's some questions about it. But if you haven't started drinking, don't start for this reason. If you are, it is a reason to make sure you space it out. So let's turn to the immune system for a moment, particularly given the prevalence of COVID and the Omicron variant running throughout the world and throughout our country. Um, when, you, when you talk about boosting your immune system, what can we do to um, help do that during these times? One of the interesting things that I um, read when I, was, when I was researching for you was exercise. And I'm somebody who does quite a bit of exercise. And, and one of the things that you say is, do your normal amount of exercise, but don't push it because going beyond your normal amount of exercise actually brings your immune system down. Um, what are the things that we all ought to be thinking about, whether it's exercise, sleep, and diet at this time to help us boost our immune systems? Well, the data we have is somewhat limited, but let me go and say what you can conclude from the data. One is that if you were to get a vaccine, Having three days of good sleep and a week or two of a multivitamin uh, beforehand increases the take rate of that vaccination. So we have the data we have is on um, common goals. We have some with the other COVID viruses, that is the other coronaviruses, not COVID-19 viruses. And it looks like one sleep beforehand, six and a half to eight hours, a multivitamin for three weeks beforehand, and then a doing exercise at your usual pace. Doing more than two hours in a row, that is marathon runners, 
have an increased risk of common colds and of susceptibility to infections beforehand. Sugar decreases the ability of your white cells to kill and to engulf bacteria and viruses. So it is a healthy diet with low sugar. So what you're doing on intermittent fasting is absolutely perfect for um, maintaining it. Now, where's the conflict from what I'm saying now and your question before about alcohol? Because alcohol does impede your immune system. And we think some of that is the sugar in alcohol. And so it is one of the compromises I make to uh, is that glass of wine in the evening. So, Dr. Harrison, you also talk about how we should sleep, not how long we should sleep, but how we should sleep on our back, on our sides. What's, I was fascinated on this one. Yeah, so this is actually one of the most interesting things is um, if you can and don't have sleep apnea, then the best position for your back, for your musculoskeletal system, is on your back with a pillow under your knees. If you're going to sleep on your side, so you have sleep, uh, you worry about sleep apnea or you have some problem sleeping on your back, then it is on your side, but not in the fetal position, but is stretched out with a pillow again between your knees. So the point of of this is um, many of us wake up with pain on getting out of bed or stiffness. That's actually an inflammatory process. So pain in the morning is inflammation. Pain in the evening is a injury, if you will. So pain in the morning is you want to do things that decreases inflammation and that stretches you at night rather than contracts you. And also as it relates to COVID and where COVID sits with with SARS, it was more embedded in the lungs and therefore wasn't as transmissible as the COVID-19 variant, whereas now this is sitting in our nasal passages. So therefore being on your side is better than on your back. Am I correct in that? Yes. So in other words, the reason that sleeping face down now is used in the ICU is exactly that. One is it gets some better aeration, but two, it keeps the infection from getting worse from coming from your nose into your lungs. So if you got infected, the sleeping on your back is not the thing to do. Um, You want to sleep with your head slightly down so your nasal secretions drain outward rather than into your uh, lungs or gut. So final piece on the immune system, stress is a big inhibitor or it's a stress is an inhibitor of your immune system running properly. I know you wake up every morning and kiss your wife, Nancy, and that brings your stress level down tremendously, but talk for a moment about our society today and the fact that it appears that we have more stress in our society than we've ever had at a time when we actually should be de-stressing ourselves and not increasing stress. So you you read these stories about, I don't know, flight rage and people getting on airplanes and, and accosting flight attendants and all the kind of built up anger and animosity that there is in our society today and what that's doing to people's stress levels. Yet right now is when we all from what I've read of what you've written, we all ought to be chilling out and trying to get along with each other because the stress is impeding our immune systems. Yes. So you're, you are exactly right. Uh, Stress and toxins like tobacco are some of the worst things for our immune system, if you will. 
but the in in so stress management is one of the best. So we developed a program called uh, Stress Free Now at the Cleveland Clinic. If we'd known how to market it, we'd have beaten Calm and all the others by a long shot because it's actually a much better program. But um, so it is uh, it is part of our uh, Great Age reboot on the on the Reboot Your Age app, but. What it is, is we've now done studies um, using the Pittsburgh Perceived Stress Scale, developed at Carnegie Mellon um, in 1979-83. So that's when the, we have the standards for it. And the standard in America, higher is more stress. Um, but the standard in 79-83 was 12-1 for men, 13-7 for women thought women had higher stress levels due to their caregiving responsibilities. We tested that in uh, about 10 different cities in the United States, in Canada, France, Saudi Arabia, Abu Dhabi, uh, India, China, um, a whole bunch, 14 different countries. In any case, the stress level around the world, on average, was 191 And no country had a level that was below 18.5. That's five standard deviations above the mean in 79 to 83 and was associated with the development of chronic disease. If you do the Stress-Free Now program, and we publish it, and so it's a randomized controlled trials. We used nurses in different hospitals other than the Cleveland Clinic. You're able to reduce by just doing one of the 12 techniques. And so we go through 12 techniques such as deep breathing and guided imagery, if you will, progressive muscle relaxation, et cetera, meditation, et cetera. If you do one of those techniques regularly, you're able to reduce the stress level of that population into the normal range or even below the normal range. So that was, and we, we've done this at a number of different healthcare institutions. Um, So the point is you can do that. But the point you raised, the world is at a much higher stress level now than it was in 79 to 83. And it is at a level now that in 79 to 83 would have been associated with the development of a chronic disease such as type 2 diabetes or osteoarthritis. So stress reduction you know, I when I, pra- I practice in executive health at the Cleveland Clinic and in wellness, and almost all the executives will say, I give stress. I don't have to do a stress. Uh-uh. They, everyone has stress. So it is, it is something that we all need to uh, practice. Before we move into what you did on the wellness front at Cleveland Clinic, because the data is so compelling, and I think it's very insightful to um, – both individuals as well as corporate leaders on how you can really make a difference on the wellness and health of your population base. Um, Before you took that job, you were the um, head of anesthesiology uh, at Cleveland Clinic and also pain management. And that included 180 operating units and 28 pain therapy uh, intervention units. Um, I just read Empire of Pain by Patrick Keefe all about the opiate crisis in the United States and the Sackler family's role in that. Um, and there's actually a, a, a movie that, or actually a television show that my wife and I are watching right now um, that is really um, uh, uh, quite something um, 
talking about that pandemic, if you will. Um, I guess my question to you, Dr. Royson, is this. Was the opiate pandemic avoidable? Well, I don't know whether it was totally avoidable because the drug developed by Paul Jansen, who sold his company to Johnson & Johnson, fentanyl, is so good. And let me tell you what we did at the Cleveland Clinic, what I did at the University of Chicago and then at the Cleveland Clinic when I accepted the job at, as a department chair of anesthesia, critical care, and pain management at the University of Chicago. The first thing I did was I called uh, a friend through Squash named Doug Talbot. Doug ran the largest um, treatment center for physicians at that time, 1985, for drug addicts, if you will, for physician drug addicts. And I said to him, how do we prevent it? And he said, you have to shut the ORs down for three days at the start of your residency and um, teach people how to how dangerous these drugs are and then scare the hell out of them by doing and teach them how to do interventions because they're going to have to do them if they're they don't um, uh, have all of their friends controlled this way so what we did is we shut we shut the operating half the operating rooms down very expensive thing and then did this three-day program and at the university of chicago during that entire time, we trained something over a thousand trainees, as well as had large staff, et cetera, and nurses in the ICU, et cetera. We had a total of two people get addicted, and they got addicted to propofol and had avoided the, the training program. But fentanyl is so good, you can't try it once without, without pain, without getting addicted. And that is, if you look at heroin, demerol, and morphine, they all cause a little dysphoria, a little dislike, or some nausea and vomiting. Fentanyl often doesn't cause any of the side effects. So one dose and you can get addicted on it. Um, when I came to the Cleveland Clinic as chair of anesthesia, critical care, and pain management, I, the hardest negotiation was with Toby Cosgrove over that three-day reduction because it's a very expensive thing to reduce your operating rooms and to do interventions on one another. And that was so powerful that in the time at the Cleveland Clinic and we did randomized drug test testing, et cetera, we had zero in my time at the Cleveland Clinic when we did that. Now, the so is it preventable among physicians and nurses? I believe so if you do enough education and do enough um, understanding that don't try it once because these drugs are way too good. That's the same, I think, with um, the, uh, if you will, Purdue Pharma drugs. They're very good and very low in side effects. Constipation is one of their major side effects um, until you get to respiratory depression, which is, of course, a narcotic effect. So the um, the point is, I don't know if it was avoidable with the development of these good drugs. One of the things that kept it down from 85 to recently was that fentanyl was a much harder to synthesize and no one knew the formula, which is why Johnson & Johnson was able to, to keep that drug so well and 
to, and they also make carfentanil. I mean, one of the experiments we did, just to show you how powerful carfentanil is, remember there were hijackings in the late 80s and 90s. And we did the, the again, using uh, economic department at the University of Chicago and the mathematics department studied, could you spray carfentanil in and then run around with Narcan and save all the people who were regular passengers and pilots and stewardesses, but not the uh, hijackers. And we couldn't, we could not, I mean, the problem is you would lose some of the passengers that way. So, but that's how strong carfentanil is. You get a little on your skin and you can die from it. So that's one of the things that, that is now being synthesized. It's a horse anesthetic or a a big animal anesthetic is why it got developed, but it is so powerful. So you mentioned Toby Cosgrove when he was running the Cleveland Clinic, and you you give him a lot of credit for having put you into the role of chief wellness officer and then the outcomes that you achieved. But the outcomes that you achieved, Mike, are stunning as it relates to the wellness of the over 100,000 employees inside the Cleveland Clinic system. Um, you cut smoking from 15.4% of the employee base down to less than 5%. Less you, than two. Less than two. Oh, excuse me for, 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 for being at five. I, I said less than five, so I was actually typical. I was actually correct, but you're right. And, and, and let me tell you why, how Toby, Toby this is, shows you what a leader does. So um, there were a couple of high-profile surgeons, big producers, big volume, as well as well-known, nationally excellent surgeons who were smokers, and they refused to quit when Toby banned smoking on campus. And they said, we're going to smoke in our offices. And Toby said, you're going to have to find new offices because I'm going to fire you. And they kept smoking and Toby fired there. And that made a, I mean, if you will, if he was willing to fire them, he's willing to fire anyone else, right? So um, that changed the whole thing. And people were understood that he was serious and that we were serious, that if we're a healthcare organization, we should stand and help our employees uh, get healthier. So you used significant incentives. And I read that there was a RAND study that said that incentives don't work in getting people to do wellness programs unless the incentives are really big. So what does really big mean? Because you clearly got the incentives to work at Cleveland Clinic. Yeah, so we, just to give everybody an understanding, um, our average age of workforce was 47 um, it was a little skewed more female. Six, and when you look at it on a national level, 6% have what we call six normals plus two. Uh, six normals meaning normal blood pressure, normal body mass index, no cotinine, tobacco end products, et cetera, in their uh, urine. Um, so, the, the, And I can go over why we chose six normals plus two, but that was what was shown in the Medicare database. They're now We got up to about 44% from 6% which was the national average for age 47-year-old people with our, our uh, demographics to 44%. And we did that by offering, uh, Toby said, we're going to give people at least a third of what we save, don't spend on healthcare back. And, he's on, and he honored that and the clinic honored that. So we ended up at the, at the upper limits allowed by law, which is $1,540 on our premium back for achieving six normals plus two. The plus two is see a primary care uh, practitioner every 
year and immunizations up to date. That was even be, that was before COVID. COVID actually isn't included in that now, is not included yet. Um, but in any case, we got to over 44 percent. We're spent in we're spending 38 percent less than our competitors or our trend line. Um, and consequently, in addition, our employees are spending someplace around $250 million less in co-pays and premiums. So that's the, and, and we're saving, as you know, we've saved over the uh, 11-year period now, a little over $1.4 billion for 101,000 employees and dependents. So your CFO didn't say it was savings. He said he didn't have to spend the money. And you're going to have to explain to me how the CFO of the Cleveland Clinic says that he that it's not true savings if you didn't actually go spend the money. But that number, Mike, is just staggering. And and by your calculation, so it, you just said over 1.1 billion of total savings. 1.4 billion, right. The last time I heard you talk about what was going to the savings account, the retirement accounts of the Cleveland Clinic employees, it was a calculation on your behalf of almost $200 million of additional, if you will, funds in those retirement accounts of the Cleveland Clinic employees who participated in this. Is that correct? Um, That's correct. If they had put the savings into their HSA, their retirement account, um, their account that could be shifted to retirement at age 65, it was around $250 million in savings. Now, that was two years ago. There's an additional, I don't know, uh, multiply, it's probably uh, um, close to uh, 50 million or 100, maybe even 100 million since I'd have to do the calculations. But what I find to be so interesting about it is, A, the incentives are there and they're real and they're defined. And then the second thing is that the six normals, are not, I mean, it, it's it's not go, it's not do 10,000 steps a day. It's not even to the degree of getting people to do something they don't want to do. It's just getting those six, if you will, biomarkers in line. And if you can get those in line, paying rewards for it, and then the outcome has just been unbelievable. Yes. Yeah, so what we did is when Toby uh, appointed me, I said, what can we do and to help our employees. And everyone was doing process. That is, you got paid if you had, if you got your uh, variables measured or you got your LDL or whatever um, measured. You got paid if you did 10,000 steps a day or whatever it was for three months. But those are process. What mattered to the health outcomes, that is whether people stayed healthy, whether they needed hospitalization or needed healthcare, was um, from the Medicare, it was actually the Chicago Public Employees Unions in 1946, the gas company, electric company, and water company agreed to have their lives followed till they died, uh, their medical costs. And if they had six normals, normal blood pressure, which probably is most important, normal LDL cholesterol, normal body mass index, and it doesn't have to be normal. It just doesn't, it's not going into the obese range from overweight. The normal fasting blood sugar, hemoglobin A1C, no cotinine in the urine. And then the one thing we we use process for was uh, stress program completed. When we started it as, as uh, um, I could not do stress at the Cleveland Clinic, so we, um, as Toby said, I like 
many executives, I give stress and people have to buck up when I give it. So I don't want that as a measure. Um, but in any case, um, the uh, and the plus two are see a primary care practitioner and get the values every year. And the primary care practitioners, by the way, love this because all of a sudden people were actually taking the blood pressure pills and doing the things rather than ignoring them. Um, so what happened in the, in the public employees union of Chicago is they had a 70% reduction in development of chronic disease. They lived 30% longer, so their total medical costs for the rest of their life were about 50% less. Um, so that was the, uh, if you will, um, that was the, the change, if you will. Right. And so that's why we did that policy. And what happened is uh, Toby said, we'll keep going up in the incentive as we save more money and give them that money back. And we'll do it as the basis of the law. And we did an active, uh, we actually did an active lobbying campaign during the ACA PPA construction to try and get prevention as able to be paid for. And, you know, up to 30%. And if uh, the secretary of HHS says uh, tobacco can be included, you can up to 50% difference in uh, healthcare premiums. So we did the, we are at the 30%, which is the loud, largest allowed by law now. And so it's about 1500 and I think it's 1540 a year reduction to employees now for that. And that's how we, we, we do it. And, 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 and Toby has stayed. Now, where was the cross point? When you give a small amount, you actually see employees inhibiting other employees from doing it because they say, wait, they'll make it mandatory. When you get large enough, everyone starts to do it. And that, and that large enough was around in, in 2015, $680. We started seeing that all the barriers to people not doing it got broken down. And as you keep going up, you, you break down more of those inhibit, inhibiting barriers. So I want to shift gears to the Great Age Reboot and just talk about longevity and on what your upcoming book talks about as it relates to the economics of all this. Um, so if I were born in 1800, my, my lifespan on average was going to be 36 years. If I was born in 1928, it was going to be 55 years. So I'd be dying this coming year. If I was born in 2000, it would be 78 years. And right now, if I'm born in 2016, I've got an 80 year average lifespan. But your work and your research basically says throw those numbers out the window because technology and innovation are going to make it so all of us can live a lot longer. And I, in reading your book, was really, really excited because um, on page 27 of your book, and it may move between now and when it actually gets published, um, it shows that my age in 2021 at 55 years old, that a female born in 1967, which is the same year as me, had a life expectancy of 74 years old. And that by 2030, my life expectancy will have increased by 60 years to 115 years old. So I need you to explain to me, Mike, how I just found 60 years of life expectancy. Well, you didn't find you found about uh, 36 or, or 40 um, but let me, let me go through. There are, I told you that you're a genetic engineer 
because each of your choices changes which of your genes are on or not. When the Human Genome Project started, we expected there was enough DNA base pairs in your nucleus to find 300,000 genes, but there were only 22,500 or so found by both of the the human genome projects. And what they call the rest of the DNA, they initially called it junk DNA. Subsequently, over seven years later, it was found out it was actually switches, little rheostats, like a rheostat on the wall that governs which of your genes are on or not. And you have an amazing amount of rheostat material. So um, that is, you have 280,000 equivalents in uh, genes as rheostats switches. So when you do stress management, for example, you change and you successfully do it, you decrease about 150 genes that produce inflammatory proteins and you turn them off. That's why stress management is so important. You get to turn off your inflammatory producing protein genes. Well, what we now know from this is we know a lot about, because of the Human Genome Project, how to edit genes and how to look for genes that are associated with aging. And Yamanaka got the Nobel Prize, I think in 2012, for four genes that were, that he found that were able, when you did these in mice, rebooted the mouse from an old mouse back to a young mouse. So imagine, so you've got all the, all the genes you had when you were eight cells old and didn't have any brain or didn't have a heart. And so maybe we could, the thought was, develop a new brain, a new heart by turning the right genes on. Well, there are 14 of these areas. CRISPR, Cas9 of gene editing is one, and, and stem cell uh, pro reduction, re, reproduction is another, and senolytics, harvesting old cells is another. Anyway, there are 14 of these areas that have all been done in at least two animal species. So they're not fly by night. And what that means is there's a great likelihood with more than an 80% probability that the group of these will be able to make you feel 40 when you're 90 and have a life expectancy. And we're really conservative when I say 115, because in animal species now, they've just done it a second time, rebooting mice and rats from literally, they were 107 uh, years old back to 40. And they did it a second time. So they're now 170-year-old rats rebooted back to 40. So the equivalent to human age. So um, whether you're going to be able, whether any of these will work in humans, we aren't sure. But the, the spinoffs, just imagine one of the spinoffs. The spinoff in is heart failure. About 30% of heart failure is caused by an abnormal protein. With CAS and, and with CRISPR and CAS9, they've edited out that gene in six Australians who had that and changed their life expectancy from six to eight months to 18 years. So if with these people with heart failure, they're doing it with, with uh, sickle cell anemia as well. So the, 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 the spinoffs are really going to change, are changing our life expectancy and our quality of life right now. 
And yeah, there are a whole bunch of things. And, and so what we do is go in the book in a whole bunch of things you can do now to prepare for it. And then uh, Peter Linneman and uh, Al Ratner go into uh, the economic changes and why this is actually a solution to our economic problems rather than, uh, rather than longevity being a cause of. Well, your, your projections in the book are that by 2050, we've got a U.S. population of 450 million people, whereas the Census Bureau is right now projecting a U.S. population in 2050 of 390 million. And so you just think about that extra 60 million people. I mean, in your chart, you're projecting that by 2050, there are half a million Americans who are over 120 years old. Right. So, and by the way, when I pull my insurance policy to take a look at this thing, it only goes to 100 years old. And my return on the insurance policy is 4.23% if I live until I'm 100 years old, which is the whole reason I'm sitting there going, why am I going to continue to invest in this? If I die tomorrow, it's obviously a great return for those who benefit from my life insurance policy. But if I live beyond 100 years old, the return on the life insurance policy is ridiculously low. Right. And in fact, a whole bunch of policies until recently gave you zero, gave your beneficiaries zero if you live to past 104. They've now adjusted that to 120, many of the insurance companies. But if you look in the small print, it's really amazing. Um, so if you owned a life insurance company, you want to sell life insurance and not annuities, if you will. And people often ask, well, what about COVID-19? We've heard that it shortened life expectancy. That's what we call periodic life expectancy, would you um, die of COVID-19 with the death rates from COVID-19 persist every year in the future? That didn't happen in any pandemic, and we don't expect it to with this. But cohort life expectancy, how long is your cohort going to live? We think it still is um, going to live a lot longer. In fact, a lot of the science developed because of COVID-19 will help you live longer. So talk about cohorts, because I think that's a really interesting one. You you mentioned in the book, Mike, a study at Johns Hopkins University talking about people who had hearing difficulty between the ages of, I think, 40 and 50 or maybe 45 and 55. And those people who, at, who were hard of hearing during that period of their lives ended up developing dementia at twice the rate of those people who didn't. And that whole sensory piece to it as it relates to our longevity and interacting with cohorts and being engaged in society is such an important component to all of this, is it not? No, yeah, I mean, people got to understand how well you read the book because <laughs> that's in kind of a, a small sidebar. Um, so that's right. The, um, our senses, hearing, smell, and seeing are really one, we've done a lot to reboot them, that is to be able to do them. So on your, you know, on your cell phone now, thanks to Walmart, instead of it being a $5,000 device to get good hearing aid, they're now $500 at Walmart for things that really can change the rate of hearing. And that's one of the things the Medicare, I think they were trying to get in, and I don't know whether they did get it or not in the, uh, prior bill in that hearing and and uh, devices were going to be uh, paid for to some degree. But in any case, you're hearing and saying, yeah, I can get a device and a, and a hearing aid that you can't even see that I can adjust with my cell phone that is low cost and will keep me engaged with my cohort. 
And that's one of the most important things. When you look at the studies out of the uh, British civil servants or Alameda County, which are both great studies, it was the number of people you engage with as friends that you're vulnerable to, including your spouse or uh, others, that in a one-month period, when it hits six, you live a lot longer than when it's zero, one, or two. So engaging with other people, and one of the things we think that, that hearing is so important is that engagement and that socialization. So a couple of the things is having a purpose in life, um, having a, a goal in life, if you will, as well as having friends are absolutely key for longevity. So you mentioned previously a number of the technologies, the emerging technologies that are uh, the Senolytics, for instance, um, and you mentioned in the book um, hyperbaric chambers lengthening telomeres, and you talk about plasma exchange research going on at UC Berkeley that slows the aging process. You talk about 3D Well, the printing. plasma exchange, I should say, is now randomized controlled study at 2B3A, which for people who follow the FDA, when you get two, three, three studies, it then becomes approved. Therapeutic plasma exchange is taking out your half of your blood volume and giving you your cells back and fresh albumin and saline. It used to be you had to do an exchange. People would get young blood. I would, you know, in Silicon Valley, there was a young blood company where you take blood from a young person and transfuse it into um, a guy who uh, was older. Now it appears you don't have to do that. All you have to do is do plasma exchange. In fact, you can get paid for it in the same way if you wanted to do it now um, with uh, donating plasma. They actually pay you to do the same thing. But in any case, and they give you yourselves back, what was done in this AMBAR, A-M-B-A-R, you can Google that, randomized control trial, uh, four countries, Cleveland Clinic and University of Pittsburgh were both involved in the U.S., randomized control showed that plasma exchange once a week for eight weeks and then once a month for six months didn't just slow the rate of dementia but actually reversed it in people with mild Alzheimer's disease. Now that's one study that has been completed. They're now doing, they're not, they've now started a second, I understand. They're enrolling a second three study, but this is amazing. Um, and this is essentially what they're harvesting is old cells. So it's a senolytics without a drug senolytic. It's with plasma exchange, getting rid of the old plasma, the old proteins in your plasma gets rid of uh, senolytic cells. That is old cells that make other cells around them old. So it's a one of the techniques is therapeutic plasma exchange. And if you want to follow it, you can follow AMBAR on the uh, on on uh, the Google. Um, but the other the so other point. Like- is is if you've got someone in your family um, with this, uh, with early dementia, this is something to talk to their um, their practitioner about the AMBAR study and should they start uh, donating plasma. So when I hear you talk about 
that specific example. And, and in your book, you talk about lots of other ones. You talk about CRISPR technology used to edit the cells of a young man who I think you you use the name Johnny. I'm assuming that's not his real name, who had pancreatic cancer and how successful that gene editing has been. And um, a UVA study on uh, glioblastoma and some incredible results they've had. And as I read about all these, Dr. Royzen, I was thinking about a presentation I saw by Andreessen Horowitz about two months ago, where they put up all these fintech companies and they put up PayPal and they put up Square and all these. And they they were trying to impress all of us that fintech was going to take over the world and particularly take over the financial services industry. And they said all of these fintech companies added together is worth $500 billion. And they said that with to try and impress everyone in the room. And um I raised my hand and said, but you realize that the market cap of J.P. Morgan Chase, one company, is $500 billion. And my question to you is, all of these unique investments or, or changes can be like fintech to help on a specific thing, our, our eyes, our hearing, what have you. But what's the J.P. Morgan? What's the one that is really going to push the needle and take over to make it so that we can get to these numbers that you're talking about in the book? Well, all of them are contributing. So let me go. All 14 areas are helping with specific problems and are advancing. So, for example, one of those and the epigenetic rebooting, giving an adenovirus with an epigenetic rebooting protein reverses uh, retinitis, reverses the uh, loss of retinal cells that is accompanied with uh, macular degeneration. Um, so. Each one of these is developing an area um, to help. Now, what you're saying is, is there a reboot where I come into the car wash at one end as an old car and I come out as a uh, new car at the other end? And the answer is, if you want to bet on that, we don't know whether that will happen. But that's really either induced tissue, uh, poor potent tissue regeneration or epigenetic rebooting. And there are people, Coleco, the Google spinoff that's looking at aging is, um, you know, for the first few years, they started uh, in a different sphere, but they've now switched to this and are really advancing the field greatly in in this induced pluripotent um, regeneration that started with the Yamanaka factors of, of getting that mouse from being 170 to, to 40 twice, or the rat now from 170 to 40 twice. So that would be the bet on it. Which company, I don't know, you know, if you, if you want it, if you want it, but I think each of the 14 areas will contribute to a lengthening of our lifespan by uh, a decade from hence. But whether by by 2050, if you make it to, you know, 2030, you're going to get to be to be a lot younger. But if you make it to 2050, there may be that car wash reboot. But we don't know that yet. And and isn't the punchline to it all that all the work you've done in your career to get people into the six normals that you got to have the base health to be able to have all this help you that, that if you, if you let the six normals get out of line, if you're not taking care of yourself on a daily basis by eating enough and sleeping enough and just doing the normals, 
you're probably going to get some disease that takes you down before the car wash is actually developed. We worry that's the case. That's right. And, and the key point is, is you can do things healthily now and we can change things from a, a rule base like Australia has um, to help decrease wealth inequality and health inequality as we go forward. But it is your choice now. I mean, in other words, you are a genetic engineer. And so each day is your choice of engineering your genes in a way that helps you live younger, longer. Well, with that, I will say it was your choice to join me today. And it was a huge pleasure. I um, have, as I typically do, a couple more pages of notes to go through with you, but I've run out of time. Um, But I look forward to, uh, if you will, part two of this once the Great Age Reboot is out there and others can read it. And you and I can then go through it in more detail and I can ask you more specific questions on it. But uh, Dr. Royson, thank you so much for joining me today. And uh, it's been a real pleasure. And for those, uh, just to Willie, I don't know if I'm allowed to do a, uh, a for those who want more information, they can go to greatagereboot.com. And when uh, the book comes out, they'll get notified. But in addition, we have an app that will help them and their practitioner help them stay as young as they want to be. I would go to the Great Age Reboot and also just uh, Google Dr. Royson and you will be led to a lot of other things that can be very helpful to your lives. So again, uh, Mike, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. And everyone who joined us today, thank you. And we'll see you again next week.